So, uh, welcome back to the pod. Uh, it's been a little while since our last episode, and the last time we did preview that we would be starting a series on life after college with our good friend Salisa Kalakal, but we decided to put a slight delay on that in the wake of the killings of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and countless, countless others. Salisa is here tonight. And as both of us journalists covering these protests in various cities, we wanted to just sort of share some experiences, what we've learned, what we've seen. Connor's here too. Yep, here I am. How are we doing, everybody? How's the morale? I I can say I've been better. Let the other guest start. Salisa, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Great occasion for it, right? Yeah, there's a lot going on. Uh, I'm feeling probably distressed, like just constantly distressed because... When you think the news is bad, it gets worse. Yeah, I mean, we've, we keep talking about it. It's all the memes, but 2020's just been a, a punch in the dick day after day for a little over five months now. Yep, yep. I mean, we thought the pandemic would be the big thing, and now we have... I mean, now this just, like, capital, like capitalizes on every, every failure that happened during the pandemic, and now it's just being all brought to the forefront. And Matt and Salisa are the capital J journalists here. I'm I'm fake lowercase, you know, not really, not really technically I, in the I like biz to, anymore. I'll declare myself lowercase J, really big font. But interesting. But I thought a good way to start this would be me kind of step back and get your guys' perspectives on what you've seen in the field. You're both covering protests. Um, and Salisa is in Kansas City. Matt is in the, the Bristol, Connecticut area. So, Salisa, we can start with you. What perspectives to start out with have you seen um, on the ground, and what have you gleaned from your reporting so far? Yeah, so I was at the protest uh, on Saturday uh, from, like, the afternoon to about nighttime, and then Sunday from, like, afternoon to about early evening. And I would say Saturday, Saturday things definitely felt um a little more uh violent um the protests were at this park and this park is like near this really bougie like shopping plaza and the shopping plaza was developed by this like racist uh kansas city developer who pretty much put these restrictions in the neighborhoods that he built he didn't just build that shopping plaza but he also built like also really bougie neighborhoods he put in those uh in their covenants in their deed restrictions that black people weren't allowed to live there. And that passed? Oh, yeah, that happened for, like, like 60 years. Oh, this is old. Oh, I thought this was, I thought it was more recent, but still, that's fucked up, obviously. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, from, like, the nine, from, like, 1900 to about, like, 1960-ish, um, like, these, these, like, race-restrictive covenants is what they're called, um, were pretty much used in pretty much all the neighborhoods that he developed, um, those neighborhoods are still extremely white in Kansas City. Meanwhile, all the black and brown people, they're pushed to like to the lower like the lower income parts of the city. Um, that's why Kansas City or that's part of the reason why Kansas City is um, so segregated and why it looks the way it is. Um, so the protests happened at this park um, and there were I mean there were hundreds of people there. Um, I think in my story, um, across the, like across the weekend, I would say like a s- several thousand people showed up, um, and that most of them were kind of lining the sidewalk facing the street. 
Um, and so the protesters were lining the sidewalk. They were holding signs. They were, you know, chanting. There were some people with megaphones um, who would get up to the front of the crowd and talk at times. And then the police, um, they had all this riot gear on. They had zip ties and, like, they were holding uh, tear gas canisters. Um, you know, you could see all of their guns. Like, they obviously, like, wanted to look very intimidating. Um, and they did. And they were standing in a line in front of them. And, you know, they just look really steely face, you know, not reacting. Um, and I just saw them multiple times, like, just spray the crowd with uh, tear gas multiple times. And then um, a couple other times, pepper spray. Um, and I saw it, I saw it from the back of the crowd, right? So that was kind of my vantage point. It was, I was in the back and what I would see is like something would happen either like the police would try to arrest someone that tried to come to the front to speak. Um, that did happen multiple times or maybe someone from the back threw like an empty plastic water bottle, right? And that's what they were throwing were these like empty plastic, like grocery store water bottles, um, and just chucking, really just chucking them in the air. Um, and when those things happened, that's when the cops would spray. And what I would see is just like this cloud, like envelope the front. And then this, the scary part on top of all that is the crowd, the people in back of them would then like stampede back into the park. So it wasn't just like people getting tear gassed. It was people like running for their lives, like extremely afraid. And then you know, what about the people that can't run as fast? What about, you know, the kids that are in the crowd? Like, there were children there. There were, you know, young teenagers there. Like, it's it could be very easy. Like, someone could very easily be trampled in kind of a mass stampede like that. Um, luckily, from what I saw, no one was. Um, and so people would get tear gassed. And then people were there who were extremely prepared. Um, they knew what to do. They had, like, jug jugs of milk, um, which helped kind of wash the tear gas out of your eyes. Um, and they would come up to these people that were hit and just pour it over their faces and make sure that they're okay. And this kind of altercation uh, happened multiple, time, multiple times while I was there. And then after I left but kept up with coverage, it continued happening. And then the next day on Sunday, the protests started out a little more peacefully. The congressman for the district was there, Emmanuel Cleaver. Um, our mayor, Quinn Lucas, showed up and kind of gave a speech to people. Um, but then after all of the speakers kind of were finished, some people left, but a lot of people stayed and kind of the same, you know, formation of protesters on the sidewalk and then officers in the street, um, that kind of formation happened again. The only difference this time is we had the National Guard. So on Saturday night, our governor, Mike Parsons, who is a Republican, he uh, pretty much declared a state of emergency and authorized the use of the National Guard and uh, the Missouri Highway Patrol uh, to basically assist uh, police departments in handling the protest. Mind you, this man took forever to declare a stay-at-home order for the state of Missouri for the coronavirus pandemic. Just putting it out there where this man's priorities lie. So that was kind of the main difference on Sunday night. Um, also on Sunday, um, our mayor uh, did establish a curfew starting at 8 p.m. Um, so similar to other cities like New York City has a curfew now, um, DC had a curfew. So the curfew was at eight. Um, and there was this, you could kind of feel this kind of tension in the air that the closer it got to eight, people knew the more uh, kind of violent it would get or they kind of feared that things would escalate. And while I was there, I didn't see any kind of uses of tear gas or pepper spray. Things did get tense with 
cops getting really close to protesters um, and kind of just staring them down. Uh, but when I left, um, there weren't any instances of that. But when I got home and uh, kept following up with the news, uh, once it was eight, once it was after eight, and people were still at the park, um, the cops kind of closed in on them, and that's when they started deploying the tear gas and the pepper spray. And then things, the same thing kind of happened Monday, from what I've heard. Uh, for, but that's what I've seen uh, when I was at the protest this weekend. Yeah, Matt. That, I mean, that kind kind of sounds similar to just observing from afar, even on places like Twitter, any mainstream media you're seeing, that has kind of been the prevailing type of story you'll see, particularly in big cities. I know, Bristol, you mentioned off the podcast a little bit different, but go ahead and mention what you've been seeing in, in your reporting. First of all, Salisa's and what I've been seeing on Twitter from a lot of the major cities is rather mortifying, but somehow what I've seen in Connecticut in two cities and hopefully three tomorrow is just been the exact opposite. I participated in a protest in Hartford on my own Sunday. I chose to go, and uh, once the march started, we literally had a police escort around the city. They, the only time I saw any cops get out of their car was to direct traffic away from us. It was unbelievable. We were able to march, chant, say whatever we want. There were a couple of you guys even wiling out towards cops a little bit, and nothing happened. It was it was really peaceful. It went on for a very, very long time. I did not make it to the end. I was exhausted. I got sunburnt. But I had I learned a lot. It was the first time I'd ever done that. And it was really powerful. I was really it was an incredible experience. Just the one thing that I found really shameful there was that uh there was no media coverage. Literally Hartford's one of the biggest cities in Connecticut. Almost all of the T V news stations. Hartford's one of the thirty biggest media markets in the country. Almost all the TV news stations in the state are based out of there. And all I saw was one reporter from the Hartford Current there for less than 10 minutes. And while I can confirm that the Hartford Current's reporters, or two of them, were at bigger protests in other cities, it's still absolutely ridiculous that you don't have someone at the one in the city that your paper is literally named after. And I that I found a little preposterous. Someone from News 8, which is actually one of the stations based in New Haven, asked if they could use my footage that I, twe- that I tweeted. And I said yes, but I also kind of clapped back and said it was kind of ridiculous that none of the TV stations were there. And I think I added all of them. So that felt kind of cool. Uh, continuing on, Bristol, I wasn't at this one, but Bristol held a, again, peaceful protest on Monday where... There were, again, no arrests, no issues at all. People were able to say what they wanted. The cops were very cooperative and supportive. And then I went to, for work I covered tonight, another protest in Bristol that started with an hour of just people speaking. There were a lot of people there. I don't want to approximate maybe 100 to 150, maybe more. I didn't take a good enough look and didn't even try to count it. But they, there were cops there in uniform in support. There were, it was, again, super peaceful. People were allowed to speak. No one said anything super incendiary. It was just about, this one, I spoke with the organizer, was really about being peaceful and calm and, uh, and good vibes. They were playing music before. They gave out free t-shirts. Uh, everything was super calm. And then they marched for a little while. I wasn't able to stay for a lot of that because I had a deadline to make, make, unfortunately. But they similarly got... Police, the police directed traffic away from them. They were able to go where they want. The march was very short. 
But they were able to do what they wanted, and I'm going to a protest in New Britain tomorrow where I hope the same will happen. They've had other demonstrations already in the past week that have gone well. I went to a vigil in New Britain the other night. That was very calm, but that was just a vigil. Everyone was gonna, nothing was going to go bad there. Unrelated? I mean, no, it was related. It was a vigil. It was a vigil for all of the Black Lives Lost to police brutality and racism. But that wasn't going to be interfered with. I didn't think, and it wasn't. I've just seen a very different response overall, and something that's very surprising. And I'm, I'm glad to see. I mean, I don't know what it means in the long run, and I can't speak on. I've heard that even the Bristol PD, some woman said at the event I was at today, that the Bristol PD has bad cops and has racially prejudiced cops, which I'm not surprised by. And she said she's experienced it with cops in general in Connecticut, which doesn't, again, doesn't surprise me. Not, I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying this vouches all cops in Connecticut good. Nothing short of that. Nothing close to that, rather. But I, it, it was very refreshing and to see what I saw, knowing that it was all real and it wasn't any of that fake shit that you saw on Twitter where they were like cops actually like faking solidarity for photo ops and then as soon as all of that ended they were pepper spraying and shooting people with rubber bullets and shit like this this was not that I can assuredly say that that did not happen and so that I'm just I'm I'm happy with what I saw and I'm surprised that I saw it and I'm curious going back to Kansas City not that you know Bristol's maybe just a little bit less I understand like news making in this in this scenario so Lisa I'm curious about the numbers in Kansas City and in terms of how much of an issue this has been over the the years from like the history you've gathered since you've been there like how big a problem is police misconduct is are there union issues like what are the local issues in Kansas City and how do they kind of relate to the larger stuff that's going on yeah so the policing situation in Kansas City uh is actually pretty unique so um Well, one fact I think that we need to start with is that the Kansas City Police Department is actually not controlled by the mayor. Um, So in most cities, uh, the mayor kind of, you know, the mayor does have authority over the police department, uh, you know, as we see Bill de Blasio over the NYPD, etc. But in Kansas City, that is not the case. Uh, Our uh, police department is actually uh, controlled by the governor. So the governor appoints uh, basically a police board of commissioners, and the only elected position uh, in that board is our mayor. So... Uh, that is the situation we're dealing with. Uh, and when you have that kind of setup, it does make uh, kind of justice and accountability a little bit farther out of reach just because the mayor doesn't really have that sort of same That sounds super control. foggy. Yeah, oh no, it's super foggy. Uh, I'm actually digging into it um, for a future story because I think it's it's something that people are starting to kind of uh, wake up to. Uh, it's something our mayor has actually been pretty outspoken about these past couple days uh, in some of his uh, kind of tweets on social media. Uh, but it is it is starting to become a huge issue. And I think people who are passionate about uh, ending police violence and ending police brutality uh, in Kansas City are starting to see how not having local control um, kind of hurts uh hurts our ability to check the police as a community. So that's one issue we're dealing with. Another thing we deal with is... all of Missouri um, like that? Yeah. Oh, actually, no. St. Louis actually regained local control of their police department in 2013. And the reason they were able to do that is because in 2012, on the ballot, was uh, the ability to basically give St. Louis... uh, 
give them back local control of their police department, but it was only St. Louis. But everyone in Missouri got to vote on it, and it passed. But even, like, all the small-town police departments and shit are run by the the governor's office? Yeah. That's ridiculous. So he he appoints a police a commission for each individual municipality? I don't know if it's for each municipality, uh, but it, I know I it that... Towns or cities, I wonder, yeah. Yeah, but I know that is the case for Kansas City, because um, we, are, we are a large metro. So that's one issue. Uh, another issue is we don't have body cameras. So most major departments nowadays, even kind of smaller departments, they do have body cameras outfitted on their officers. Uh, but the policies around body camera use obviously vary. In Kansas City, we don't have, the KCPD doesn't have any body cameras, uh, which is a problem. And it's not like the Kansas City Police Department doesn't have its own history with police violence, uh, because they do. When I was looking at the Washington Post uh, database of uh, police killings, uh, it goes back to 2013 or 2015, I believe. And since then, up until about uh, 2017, uh, the KCPD killed about 13 black men. So it's not like they don't have these cases of brutality and violence and killing of civilians. They do. And some of the, I mean, some of these men are uh, Donnie Sanders, Cameron Lamb, uh, Ryan Stokes. Uh, Ryan Stokes actually, in his case, Exactly. Um, and that's actually what, what some of the organizers wanted to bring attention to is not is, um, yes, justice for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but also bring attention to our own local issues with the police uh, killing, killing black men and just killing civilians. Uh, in, in the Ryan Stokes case, uh, there was a foot chase uh, in our downtown district um, in this area called Power and Light. Uh, the cops chased him into a parking garage and they shot him in the back. And then he died. Uh, later on, uh, after that, the KCPD pushed a narrative that uh, that he was armed, that he engaged in a standoff with police officers. And then later on, when this when this kind of I think went to court, um, the one of the officers who's actually involved in the foot chase he came out and testified against the police narrative, and he said that he wasn't armed and that there was no standoff. So essentially, they. They killed someone who was not a threat to them at all. And then he ended up getting pushed out of the police department, and the officer that actually killed Ryan Stokes still works for the police department. So that's another issue. The <laughs> oversight on this stuff is, like, it's out of control. I mean, I've been... It's crazy. Scouring, I've been scouring through, like, the DeRay-McKesson website, the Campaign Zero, and a couple other places. There's just been a lot of stuff published about unions, which, mm-hmm. like... The way the place my mind goes is is like my family is kind of has a background in politics and government. So my mind always goes to like, okay, what like what can we do legislatively? And a lot of times it's just so it's so overwhelming to be like, okay, we got to change campaign finance laws so that lobbies of the Fraternal Order of Police can't contribute seven hundred thousand dollars to campaign against a progressive public defender or to get this mayor out of office so that. They have these negotiations for their unions, for their cops, where, yes, they have good pay, they have good overtime, good benefits, they all have great pensions, things like that. But then it's also there's just no accountability. And there's so many instances where, for example, a lot of towns or a lot of cities, particularly in this Campaign Zero website, they cite about 80 cities um, where the cop, for example, after one of these incidents happens, there's a shooting. 
the police officer gets 48 hours to review, for example, the body cam footage. They can review the statements from the witnesses, uh, basically gives them a chance to get their story straight while the witness on the other side doesn't have that. There's rules where uh, six, if, a, if a complaint is filed 60 days after the incident, it's null. It doesn't count. If there is a complaint that is not, there's no discipline acted on it, then that does not go on the personnel file. And that's basically, basically boils down to about 1% of complaints that are filed in, in a lot of these major cities end up being prosecuted. And sometimes when they are, it is the police departments themselves, almost most of the time, who are in charge of investigating them. So like th- a lot of this stuff is bargained between unions and between mayors and cities, and the cities just have no bargaining power. Much because of this campaign finance, and I, I'm, I know I'm like all over the place on this, but these mayors need money, and a lot of the money can come from cops. And if you don't have cop support, then you're the mayor, mayoral candidate who's soft on crime. And it's just, it's just like overwhelming from that standpoint. So when I think about like solutions, it's like, I don't know. I don't know how you get around all that, like within this generation, but I'm interested in what you guys have been hearing. Like, are there smaller things that can be done? Like how do we ban chokeholds? Like, I don't know. My mind wanders. There's a lot to unpack there, but just about the soft on crime comment, let's never forget. And this is being brought to a lot of people's attention on Twitter that when the NYPD last went on strike, crime went down in New York city. So dis so so just lowering your police funding doesn't necessarily mean that you're soft on crime. Yeah. Also adding to that, let's also not forget that Bill de Blasio, when he was running for mayor, ran on a supposedly criminal justice campaign where he was gonna fix broken windows policing and he was gonna clean up like the mess that was made. And he low key exploited his family on the campaign as someone yeah, who lives ex- lived in New York City during this time and watched his campaign commercials he I mean he, I I don't know the the backstory of who of his son wanted to record a commercial for his campaign but he exploited the hell out of the fact that his wife is black and that his kids are his kids are black Oh yeah yeah exploits him all the and time big ups to his fucking daughter for getting arrested in one of those protests in New York Yeah and then also big Fuck you to the police account that decided to tweet her like arrest her like criminal record and her mugshot, which was completely inappropriate. Just, uh, just hers? as an aside. Yeah. Oh yeah. Huh. I think so. I have to go look. But they published hers. And well, anyways, on this Bill De Blasio track, he ran on this whole like I'm gonna fix the police, I'm gonna fix policing, blah blah blah. Gets into office. And kind of, like, kind of, sort of does that for a couple years, sort of. But then, uh, I believe it was when, I think a cop, a cop was killed, basically. And then, uh, Bill de Blasio gave a speech at the, at the funeral. And then the cop, some cops turned, turned their back on him. And then, as we see now, he is defending the NYPD, even though there is ample video evidence of New York City police officers just, like violently attacking people whether it's in a squad car which we saw over the weekend or chasing people through the roads i saw a video last night or just just indiscriminately uh being violent with people so yeah that's another issue is even if yeah even if kansas city did get local control back over its police department like the next issue we would deal with is how much I mean, how much how much influence does our police union have over our mayor, and how much is our mayor gonna bend the knee to what the police union wants? And body cams. 
and body cams. Oh, on the body cam thing, um, mayor, our mayor actually recently announced, like just two days ago, that he received that basically the city received funding to actually buy body cameras. So, allegedly, we are getting them now. I'm just gonna say this now. I am skeptical because, in general, I'm just skeptical of announcements of doing things versus actually doing them. So saying that someone's going to do something is different than them actually executing it, first of all. Uh, but also, uh, the money is coming from like a, basically a family like foundation grant. Uh, I don't know anything about, about that foundation. I don't know what kind of accountability is on the money that they're giving. Um, I also don't understand how we couldn't have found the money in other means. Uh, maybe that were a little more like ethical, um, like maybe the Kansas City could, you know, rethink its budget. Anyways, so apparently we're getting them now, but you know, we'll see how long they take to imp- implement. We'll see what the what the policies are. I mean, in order for the body cameras to work, you have to have policies that mandate that, you know, they're on all the time. You can't turn them off, and if you do turn them off, you know, you actually have to get reprimanded for it. You can't put tape over them before shooting rubber bullets in the faces of individuals. Exactly. And then and then with the footage itself, like, you actually have to keep it. You can't just toss them after, you know, 60 days because that's just the arbitrary time limit that we put on videos. No, you have to make it available for a long time. Archive that shit. Yeah, archive that shit. Exactly. Keep it in there and don't give, don't give the officers time to look at it and kind of figure out their story. They should be interviewed right after the thing happens, get all these statements. And like the accountability thing also with the, it goes along with the bans that the NYPD had where they're covering their police number, which is like, like it's like number top of top of the rule book is Terrible. you get to a scene, you identify who you are, you, you have your badge number there so that you're accountable. But they have so many protections in these contracts that they just don't have to, and they know they don't have to, so they continue to get away. How many episodes of television and movies are there where cops get fucking roasted for, did you identify yourself as a police officer? Literally. Tom Selleck talking to his sons at dinner every night, right? I don't exactly. know if you guys like Blue Bloods. You know, my <laughs> my dad loves Blue Bloods. Rob Hornick has seen every episode of Blue Bloods. I've actually seen, have you guys seen like some of these actors that play cops? Donating like tens of thousands of dollars on Twitter. That's good. Do you see uh, after Tr- did you see Trump tweeted Law and Order and Ice T responded to it? What did Ice T say? I don't remember, but just because Ice T's on Law and Order SVU and Trump just said Law and Order in all caps. I'll add this out. This wasn't a very good. Can we talk about Law and Order for a second? Because like I was, you know, I listen to other podcasts a lot of times. I love podcasts. Um, but there was a discussion on Law and Order and how Trump kind of uses this as like. This big thing, like you know, all the all the right wing people on his side. That's what it's all about. We're going to send in. Who was the last president to run on Law and Order? Was it Nixon? Sixty-eight, right? Nixon. Yeah. I would say. I think. No, I would say. I would say almost every president has campaigned on this kind of. No, but there was a president in like the last fifty years who like flexed. Who like that was one of their buzzwords or terms. I think it was. I think Reagan definitely uh, campaigned on crime. Regardless of well, there was the war on. Nixon crime. was definitely one of them. Oh yeah, yeah. Then this is also like another warped, like big broad, broad idea I've been hearing. But like the idea that law and order, it they're very opposite in the fact that they're in the way that they're carried out. Like when you talk about order, using the law to have this order. So like, okay, we're going to send all these troops 
I mean, troops is a weird way to call them, but that's what they soldiers. are. Soldiers. National Guard. And the way they're dressed, they're soldiers is essentially what they are. We're going to send them to be present at this protest to create order. Basically, what has happened is mostly there's been peaceful protests and the presence of this military cops with military gear, the presence of this force has made the situation not peaceful, which is not order. So the idea is he's he's using his law in order to send in these people to keep order. And at the end of the day, he has no control over what these individual people are doing. So he, they Trump? may have very good... Ad- yes, Trump, the president, whoever's in charge of deploying these troops. In this case, it would be Trump. He has zero control over what these individual officers do. So, like, they may be provoked, they may do something, they may not be provoked, do something stupid, but in like in its very essence, it's the opposite of order because he has zero control over it. And I just think, like, that's interesting that that's, that's his all-caps tweet, or one of them, and the result is completely out of his control. My other, yeah. Uh, well, you can go, Salisa. Many people on the right are focusing more on the quote-unquote writing aspect than the actual justice aspect and the actual police brutality aspect of these protests. Um, Obviously, focusing on writing is essentially, uh, at least I believe, it's a bit of a distraction to the overall message of what's going on. I mean, again, you can rebuild a building that's damaged. You can't bring back someone that's dead. So I'm going to leave it at that for people who think who go crazy over property destruction um and connor what were we talking about law and order i just went on a rant about law and order and how it it doesn't make sense it's not really orderly to call in troops to stop protest another thing off of that with all of the as we just lose all structure here uh just something i want to bring attention to is that i learned through I believe he's a senator, could be representative from Hawaii. His name's Brian Schatz. He just shows up on my Twitter a whole lot. That guy says a lot of good things. And he said he's introducing a bill to repeal a program that we have in which our military, like, hand-me-downs, like, old weapons and shit to police departments, which is why you can see all of our regular city cops across the country decked out in literal war machines. So, yeah. I just wanted to say why that that I'm with Brian on that one. That needs to stop. Why are we actually giving regular policemen military apparel? They don't need that for literally any reason other than to be overtly violent. Okay, I know I I know what I want to say now. Um, I think politicians a lot of the time, and I think politicians on both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party do this. Um, They paint a picture of crime being higher than it is uh, and crime being more violent than it is. Uh, One of the major trends we've seen is that uh, violent crime has actually gone down uh, kind of in massive, you know, historic trends over the years. Uh, But still, I mean, when you paint a picture of violence, then you make people rely on a force to basically quell that violence. And that's where cops, that's where the police come in. So, you know, if you're a politician, you create this picture of, oh, there's lawlessness on the streets, you know, there's so much violence, you know, this violence needs to be stopped, and that's that's why we need the police. And then it justifies, you know, it justifies programs like uh, giving the police 
military gra- military military grade weapons, and it kind of justifies. I'm not sure anything will justify that in my eyes, but. Well, the reasoning justifies it. It works for them. Yeah, the reasoning justifies it. It works for the politicians, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so, I I mean, they they kind of rely on that relationship. I mean, they, they, need, thing, they need things to be violent in order to keep having the, in order to keep legitimizing the police. But that, then we're just living in a state of fear. Oh, yeah. I mean, we do live in a state of fear. Wouldn't you say we are? We, we're living in a state of manufactured fear. I mean, yeah, literally right now we are, but. Yeah, I mean, in the ni- in the nineties, I mean, or no, in the eighties and nineties, with like, with like the crack epidemic, I mean, the media painted black people as basically they painted black women as welfare queens. They painted black men as violent. I mean, it, cable news was the worst offender. I will say, uh, in kind of painting this picture of like the violent black man, um, and it, it really was like not to cut you off, but like it was a big. The big platform and the stance to take was we are going to put all these people in jail. Oh, yeah. Build three. We're going to build hundreds more prisons and this is going to protect everyone. And we know in the long term that's not what happened. But it is it is these politicians who continue to just get reelected and reelected and reelected. And that's why so much of this stuff feels like paralysis, because like it has to be like to me, it feels like it has to be a generational shift where people of our generation who have new more just ideas of how to of how to use law because you need law you need law and order in some respects you don't need military on the ground but yeah you need to have you need to be able to call someone to help you when you're in danger but if we could if we could get past the warped idea of like in that particular case like the crack epidemic excuse me maybe we'll take that out horn if we can get past the idea that like the crack epidemic marijuana users uh like loitering like all, this is like the broken windows stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, get past that; those are all big things. We don't need to put people in jail for a long time. You put them in jail once, it it curbs the rest of their life. If we can get past that, if we can get like cops that maybe like don't have a degree in social work, but like have some kind of aspect of I would like cops like, to have a bachelor's took, degree at the least. It doesn't have to be in social work; it doesn't have to be in anything, but a college degree. Even going further, like. Like, every cop doesn't need to have a gun. Like, we need some situations where, like, if there's homeless guys talking on the street, like, maybe they're they're both black. Like, do we need to, do we, like, all we know is to call 911. Like, do we need to always have to call someone who's going to show up with a gun where you don't know what can happen? Like, is there, is there, are there mediators you can call? I know some, some people, like, like, Los Angeles has a couple departments like this, but I, they're not deployed like, like police are, I don't necessarily think. So... It's just it's just a mindset that I feel like is a generational thing. Maybe people can make better changes at a local level. I think that's a little more feasible. But like the idea of putting all these people in prisons and just the way that senators and congressmen govern, if you're them, you don't have a reason to change what you're doing because the money keeps coming in, you keep getting reelected. There's there's not very much like it's hard it's hard to make changes especially to these places that are living in like very dense um, conservative areas where as long as you're delivering on tax cuts and like things of that nature that are important, just they'll keep putting you in office. So there's, I think it has to be like a big generational thing to make national change. I Absolutely. Know. And I, with that, the, I think something with the right that sort of goes off of some bigger topics that we've discussed off podcast are that the, the right sort of is very bought into like trusting the establishment 
in a lot of ways and like the idea that cops are there to help you. You've been, you get told that from like as young as you could possibly be. Cops are there to help you. And while that's their intention, they're proving that that's not really how they're acting a lot of the time. And so I feel like for a lot of people, it's hard to, and I'll just introduce the term because we've talked about it. We might discuss it more in other podcasts, radical acceptance. The idea that maybe the cops are the ones in the wrong. I feel like that's something that a lot of people are struggling to buy into because it's, they're so conditioned to believe the other, otherwise. And yeah. I, I'm so, I, I think people need to understand and maybe take a look at footage or open, the, open your eyes to what you're consuming. Because, like, we've seen a lot of those videos on Twitter that are, like, someone literally just talking. They just present themselves to the cops. They say a lot of words. They do nothing else. And then just get arrested. At some point, at some point when there's 200 videos on Twitter of a cop shoving someone down in plain sight, and it's clear that they were not provoked. Breaking car away, windows. At some, at some point, you, you can't just say, oh, it's just a few. At some point, it's like... And, and we know we know this. Like we know that there have been a lot of investigations. There've been a lot of stories. It's just it's just trying to cut through it and get to okay. What is like a step we can take here? Like even if you look at and again, I know I go back to the union thing a lot. A lot of the reason these these unions became so strong, and this happened in Minneapolis as well, which is where George Floyd was murdered. In Minneapolis, the police union became very pro-Trump, mostly because of this commission that uh, President Obama put together. I think it was called the Task Force on 21st Century Policing. It was a big commission he put together with a full report from Ferguson. And, and it had, like, proposals for what to do with these um, police departments, everything they were doing wrong, like just lists and lists and lists of data and all the kinds of things that were going wrong. And that's where, if you're on, the, if you're on a police union, that's where you bulk up your fundraising, you get behind Trump. The Minneapolis... Um, I don't know if they were a fraternal order of police or if they had a different name, whatever their union was, but they were literally like they sold Trump T-shirts. This comes from a BuzzFeed news article I was reading by, I have her name right here, Melissa Segura. It came out like the other day. It was all about unions. But like that's the attitude. Like Obama comes up with, at least puts this commission together. There's a report about it. If you're a union, you say, nope, we got to protect our guys. We can't allow them to have this image, which is, you know, the image isn't going anywhere, but. At the very least, they're going to say, okay, well, we can't have our guys being fired and we'll find them new jobs if they do get fired. It's it's a whole thing. And I might be making too much sense here, and I know, Slice, you haven't talked in a while, and I apologize for that. But, and this and what I'm about to say might make a little bit too much sense for it to be real. But considering that police officers are supposed to be people that want to serve the community and do good and do these things that we said they're supposed to be there for and proving they're not there for. But assuming that those are the people doing that, even if you're the union you're supposed to protect them, wouldn't you still want to condemn the ones that aren't representing those values? Or is that just too commonplace? Did that, did that line up too well? I mean, you would think, you would think that happens. However, I think, I think when you work in a police department, there is this attitude that you're like kind of in a fraternity with each other. I mean, that union is called the Fraternal Order of Police, right? Literally, you yeah, are. yeah. Like your your brotherhood, you know, like you're banding together. You know, you don't sell out one of your guys. I I remember a couple of weeks ago, um, Zach and I, uh, Zach's my boyfriend. We watched this documentary on um, basically these corrupt uh, NYPD cops 
um, from, I believe it was the 70s or 80s, um, and this, this cop is on trial, and he's being asked basically about police culture and, you know, selling out your officers, or not selling them out, but basically, uh, you know, if an officer does something bad, you know, are you going to tell your supervisor? Are you going to tell someone? And the guy basically says, no, I mean, we, you know, we're like, we're brothers. We don't do that to each other. You know, no one says anything. And I think that's the culture across a lot of these departments is you just don't say anything. You know who else operates like that? Organized crime. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, the generational thing that you mentioned, uh, Connor, is interesting because... It almost is a generational thing. I mean, all of us were born in 96, am I right? Yep. Yep. I mean, the 1994 crime bill and kind of the the crime bills that were passed around that time kind of set up the system that we have now, or at least ramped it up to get to the point that we are right now. I mean, it gave so much money to, it authorized so much in funding to go to uh, police departments that kind of followed like certain certain rules. You had the three strikes rule, uh, you had, I mean, you had all these kind of new uh, kind of pr- provisions on crime that ramped up incarceration and is getting us to where we are now, uh, where we have the like we have the most incarcerated kind of population in the world. Like our po- yeah, the people that we have that are locked up is insane compared to the rest of the world. Oh, absolutely. And think about the number of people there there for like. A dime bag of weed. Exactly. Or a couple a couple ounces even. Like yeah. just really fringe worthy crimes and just literally I mean, there are jokes about it in like movies where it's just like I think it's Harold and Kumar go to White Castle when Harold gets arrested and he's in the cell with the other guy and he's like, Oh, what are you in there for? Being black. It's like, wait, what? Yeah, I was in a Barnes and Noble and some black guy apparently robbed a store. What? so I got arrested even though I wasn't there. Like, there's Which literally is, jokes about that. Like, it's a real thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a real thing. And not only are our not only are, do we have more people in prison, but our prisons are literally designed to create repeat offenders. Yes. Have you ever seen like a prison in Sweden? It looks like a college freshman dorm. Yeah, and they actually rehabilitate people. Yeah, that's my point. They're there to correct the actions. It's literally a place where it's not. I wouldn't call it cushy. But it's a place where you can live peacefully and learn to be a better person. We don't lock them in cages and, like, give them no time outside and treat them like animals. Yeah. And then when they re-enter society, we pretty much have every obstacle possible to keep them from re-entering society. We make it difficult for them to find a job. We make it difficult for them to find a safe and affordable place to live. We make it, you know, difficult for them to like get a car to to do anything really it's ridiculous and now that this is an essential part of your day-to-day life but they can't vote they're just yeah they can't vote if you're a felon that is and felons are just and it just restricts your life in so many unbelievable ways and we've set it up so that it just it keeps the people in the same cycle and most people most of the people are people of color and yada 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 we all know where i'm going with this we all heard it before and i don't think we have anyone in our audience who doesn't know where i'm going with this so i don't feel the need to continue on it I think we should bring this back to like taking off. I guess we already took off the the journalist hat like a little bit for a second, but just like as as people who are not black and and we're taking this all in a lot through you guys are taking it in through on the ground protests, me mostly from consuming media like Instagram and Twitter particularly 
just it, like this all just feels different and this is like kind of I don't know if it's like almost cliche at this point but like there there is something that feels different about the rallying in reaction to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor who was also murdered in March um what do you think I don't I don't even know if I'd break it down to non-black people versus black people but like what are people doing well right now and what could we be doing better um i'll say i mean one thing i you can go anywhere you want with this okay yeah. to, to like the comf- the reactions the the donating anything you want uh one thing i'll say from what i saw on the ground when i was uh, uh at the protests over the weekend i saw i saw a lot of kind of uh mutual aid tables so so i saw tables with snacks with water with i mean with snacks uh, not with snacks, with masks, right? Because we're still in the pandemic. Um, I saw people. I saw people going around with milk jugs, right? Just in case people got uh, sprayed with tear gas or pepper spray and needed their eyes flushed out. There were even uh, like medic stations set up uh, in case people got hurt. Um, so that's one of the ways I think solidarity has has really been shown, um, kind of over the weekend. And one thing I noticed too is a lot of these kind of, kind of uh, like mutual aid responses um they were set up uh kind of by white people or non-black people um and i thought it was a good way to show that you're that you're standing with the cause um another thing i saw too is um like i remember talking to um this white man who was at the protest um and i just kind of asked him you know why he was there and one thing he mentioned is that he was kind of standing in the front to just, you know, just to pull people out if things got really bad. Um, and that's, I mean, that's another thing that um, that Zach did over the weekend, actually, because um, a lot of times he was at the front, and he was at the front, too, for the same reason, just to help people um, in case they got hurt. Um, he was telling me he that this 15-year-old girl got pepper sprayed or tear gassed right in the face and couldn't see, and, you know, he guided her to safety to make sure that he was okay. So I think that's one way if you're a white person especially you know one way that you can kind of you know show that you're standing with the cause is to really like use your privilege you know for what it's good for which is you know a lot of times standing in between a police officer and a black person or you know standing at the front lines and helping people or you know providing resources you know through maybe like setting up these medic stations or you know making sure that you have milk on you in case you know people people need their eyes washed out just kind of those sorts of things kind of show that you know we are together as a community and that you know we're not in this fight alone that there are actually a lot of people standing together um and i think that is one of the reasons why it might feel a little different is seems like a, a lot a lot of people are kind of waking up now that's what it seems like to me. Um, and I mean, just like people, um, you know, sharing bail funds, the amount of people that are donating. Um, I think that's also been really great, especially if like you can't go out to these protests, right? Let's say you're like really immunocompromised or you live with someone who um, is really at risk of catching the virus. You know, one way that you can still support is by donating to these bail funds and by amplifying them and, you know, sharing them with your networks. Yeah, and, and like not to make this about me at all because it's completely not about me. But I, for example, like was living in Jersey City. Now I'm at my mom's in upstate New York. There isn't really there's actually going to be a protest in my town on Sunday. My town's like ninety plus percent white. 
Um, not not like a bunch of cop issues in the news, but like for me, it's like lived in Jersey City, but I'm registered to vote here. But there's not there's not like a million protests around. But yeah, I've like donated places I haven't donated before. I find myself reading just a lot more, um, and just trying to like share information as much as possible. And I think as you were mentioning, there's a lot more specific stuff in the sharing than I've ever seen in like in past reactions to to black people being murdered by the cops. It, this is this is like people that live in New York are spreading um, information on how to write to your mayor. It's things like here you go, literally hit copy and paste, and and this is a good example of something you can write to your local elected official. Or they there's an Instagram story being shared with a specific law that's being voted on like in two weeks that you should voice your concerns on. Like I saw in Los Angeles, um, there was a budget vote right to distribute. Just like a state budget vote. So how much is, are the cops going to get? How much are Parks and Rec going to get? Highways, whatever. All this stuff. And I believe after all, like a bunch of meetings and, and council sessions just since George Floyd's murder, I think the mayor, Eric Garcetti, said he's going to cut the budget by 100 to $150 million, which is a pretty small portion of what it is. But like little victories like that seems like a result of just the constant, constant nature. It shows of we're being heard. Donating and sharing. Right. I think it's it's working a little bit. It's just about sustaining it, I think. And for me, I mean, a couple of good things that I've seen and why part. Well, first of all, the reason that I think obviously that it feels different is that we have nothing else to focus on. The coronavirus put the world on pause. There are no sports. Uh, news is different. Everyone's at home. The fact that literally that like everyone can focus on this and everyone around you can throw it in your face whether it's the athletes you follow on social media, any news outlet you follow on social media, it's just going to be thrown at you. That's and, a good point. And you're not going to miss that's it because point. you have so much time. So that's why I think that's part of why it feels different is we're all just able to consume more of it and more of it's being put in front of us to see, which is very important and I think is, like we've pointed out, going to hopefully influence a lot more change. But in terms of two good things going off of that, one would be I love the momentum that I feel this has had. I feel like this has like really like been going strong for like a week plus now, and we don't have any real sports coming back. No offense to the sports that are being played, but kind of offense to the sports that are being played. You're boring as shit. Uh, True. And especially NASCAR, you're racist. Um, Amen. I watched I watched amateur golfers on YouTube for an hour and twenty minutes the other night. That's where we're at. Oh, Connor. So yes, you're right. And with the NBA not coming back till July 31st and beyond that, we have plenty of time to continue to, to focus on this and, and make our voices heard and hopefully influence more change. And not that I'm saying that I will detach my, my involvement in this when sports comes back because I don't think I will at all. I'm not ready to. It feels weird that sports are still trying to come back. It feels super disingenuous and concerned about all the wrong things because it is. Anyway. I'm, I just like that we have time and we're able to put as much focus into it and it can't and it shouldn't end soon because it's, it's starting to make a change. And if we just keep going, it'll keep working. And secondly, I love that. Full disclosure, I grew up in, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, very wealthy neighborhood, a lot of rich, old white people. And the mayor lives in that neighborhood. The mayor's mansion is in that is in that neighborhood. Six blocks from the apartment building that I grew up in. And there are people protesting to build the Blasio outside the mansion. And that makes me so unbelievably fucking happy. The neighborhood's getting a little younger, so maybe people of more of the correct politics are moving in. You think AOC would run for mayor? I fucking would love that. Oh my goodness. 
I was wondering, like, who's going to be the next? Because his this is his last term, right? Oh, is it? I think. Well, it, there, he only had two, but that. he's only on his second. But Bloomberg changed the goddamn law so that you could run for more than There's two. There's limits and to be the mayor, right? Yeah. Bloomberg changed the law, so I think you can run for a third. Oh no. Okay, you you guys keep talking. I'll look it up. There's no way he would get elected for a third term. Not after Hope all not. this. But I I just wanted to say that I'm just so happy that people are filling the streets of the Upper East Side to protest at De Blasio for the way he's handled this. Because as we addressed earlier, it's been incredibly poor. And because there are definitely a lot of people in that neighborhood who are not of the proper understanding of the issues going on and need to be informed and need to be made to feel uncomfortable and need to be need to have this brought to their doorstep. So to be able to look out your window and literally see that on East End Avenue for several city blocks, that's important. And it's and I was very happy to see it. Yeah. Damn and right. Bill de Blasio, get your head out of your ass. Also that. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about yet is the, the whole media coverage of these protests. And we're all journalists. We all have we're degrees all, in journalism. We all have... Thanks. I'll take it. I'll take it. We all have degrees in journalism. Uh, but we all, we all have some kind of... We all have that kind of newsroom kind of experience. We have reporting, we all have reporting experience for sure. Yeah. We're I not mean, trying to shit on Connor here, even though it's how it's come out. It's fine. It's fine. I mean, ha- uh, you know, I wrote a blog every once in a while. I might get back in the game. I'm, I'm still, I'm still 24. I could be president of the United States. I could do anything. That's true. Whatever. Con- Connor's very talented with, with the written word, and okay. it makes me mad because ahead, I feel like he's that. better as a writer than I am, and I try to do this for real, and he's not. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, uh, I mean, what do you, what do we all think of how both national media and local media? has been covering this. And I can start because our local media isn't great. Oh, yeah, you you start. Uh, Okay, it's not that our local media isn't great, but I will say that it's not as strong as some other places. You put the Kansas City Star on blast. Was it today or yesterday? It was yesterday. Okay, so, yes, so this is what I'm talking about. So, uh, over the weekend, not only was I plugged into these protests, I, I was also kind of paying attention to how... Uh, local media frame the protest uh, and kind of how they spoke about you know people who were there and what happened uh, and the Kansas City Star has really just caught my attention uh, for all the wrong reasons um, I mean when I was go- scrolling through their website the other day there were mul- there were multiple headlines where it was like KCPD says and it, you know it just the headline just kind of sp- s- said, what the police said as if what the police said was like gospel or necessarily true or yeah or was necessarily true um okay one headline that was particularly bad that i did call them out on yesterday was uh it was about it was about a man who was at the protest who got shot in the eye with a rubber bullet uh and basically now his eye is all messed up and the headline basically said kcpd says uh they didn't use rubber bullets but man who got shot in eye says otherwise. So something like that. Basically that whole like he said, but she said this type of framing, which is wholly inappropriate for for what we're dealing with because you know, you can say that the police lied. You can say that the police that what the police said was false. I don't really understand this whole kind of this whole attitude among 
uh, journalists, and especially, I think, local reporters, this kind of deference to the police, uh, I don't quite understand. Um, I understand. Like, I understand if you cover crime, like, you ha- you do have to kind of have some sort of relationship with the police, but you don't have to just, you know, be a stenographer for them. You don't have to parrot everything that they say. And so that's what was really disappointing to me was just, the f- like, the way that they frame things, and it's it seems like they give the KCPD's word more more power than than others um and i don't think that's right as a journalist um and i I didn't want to do that kind of in my own coverage of of the protest Uh, i really did kind of want to focus on a what happened which what happened was that the police were violent and there really is no way to to kind of skirt around that in my opinion um and, and b to highlight um the messages of the people that were there and you know why people were protesting in the first place um, and kind of alongside the whole deference to police thing, um, the whole focus on, you know, rioting and property damage and look at what all these, you know, reckless protesters are doing. Uh, I think that whole narrative is just horseshit, basically. I think it definitely distracts from the real issues. And I think it's a minor, I think it's a minor issue compared to everything else that's going on. I think it's essentially a distraction. I think anyone that brings it up just doesn't, just is refusing to confront what the real issue is at hand. And how about the New York Post article that combines both things you just mentioned, the uh, the, the Rolex store with that they said where uh, they report that the cops said that 24 – was it like thousands of dollars in watches and other items were stolen from a Rolex store? And the Rolex store literally responds and says, no, we don't keep watches out on display. Oh my god. That's terrible. Yeah, there's just ba- just basic things that like like so- some of it comes down. If you to work for a newspaper, you should local- know better. Well, yeah, that's near a post, so there's not really an excuse. But I think some of the local stuff, it's like, as like especially in the virus, I, I, there's cuts everywhere. Even before the virus, there's so many cuts, and it's like you may have one person who's left covering crime, cops, courts, um, city hall, like everything. And update on that: I just got put on the crime beat today. Here we go. So this like might be like this is like the following weeks and months are probably going to be super instructive for you, Matt, because like if you're if you're it and you know you're going to have to be reporting stories on crime and like Salisa, you're probably going to have to deal with this going forward because there's going to be more issues, I think, oh, yeah. on police departments. You're, you're going to have to follow up on like the union stuff. It is navigating how you do that. And I like it's something I think journalists just you de- maybe develop a feel for. Yeah. And you guys are so young, so, like, I don't know, like, if it'll take a while, but, like, developing a feel for not not using, like, the press release as gospel or whatever, but, like, I don't I don't know if that you can pick every single fight with sources that you need. Like, I don't, like that's got to be really difficult, particularly when there's not six reporters on a story and it's just you and you have six other stories to do and then you have to get the, the Enterprise stories up and the ones for the ads. Like, I don't know. You guys know you work at papers. I think I've a very interesting perspective on this. Not, I don't think interesting is a good word, rarely ever, but it was especially bad just now. Anyway, as people who listen to this podcast, anyone who's ever met me knows, I am a sports reporter. This is not what I do. This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I tr- I trained for. This is not what I I want Hopefully my life to look like. <laughs> what do you mean, professors? They they know. They all. I think I made that. <laughs> unbelievably clear from the moment yeah, I stepped you, in the yeah. goddamn classroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You made that clear. They, they know. 
I've been saying this is my punishment. Becoming a news reporter is my punishment for being so uh, in. Literally, I use this word every time I, t- I use this comment. And I can't think of it right now on my own goddamn podcast. Oh, this is what I get for being so indignant towards news reporting in college. Like this is it's literally my this is my karma. But back to as as someone who literally has was never a news reporter and tried and avoided covering news in every regard up until a month ago. I've been learning every day. I mean, I had to do some news stories before that was Corona started, but I had to learn. I've been learning every day about how to cover things besides sports. I'm getting better at it, I think. But I can also completely say that this is the most alive and fun. It's fun. Isn't the word I want to use because I'm covering such unfortunate and tragic things, but it's the most inspired. It's the most like stimulated. I felt doing my job in, I can't tell you how long. Yeah. I get what you're saying. Because even though it's not, like I said, it's not sports. It's not what I signed up for. It's not what I'm best at. It's not what I want to do. This is, far more up my alley and what I care about and what I think is important than interviewing people in the stop and shop parking lot about how coronavirus has affected their grocery shopping. Oof. It's something that I'm just, I've, I've come to learn that I need to, uh, it's important that I'm doing this and I, and, and I'm, ex- and I'm excited to continue doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely say, I'll definitely say at this point in time, it feels, I think, Im- important to be a journalist. But when I say that, I don't mean, like, that we're special or something. I it mean sounds that narcissistic, but I know exactly what you mean. That's not what I, yeah, yeah. That, I don't mean to say that we're somehow special or something, or that we, we need to think that we're special, because we're not. Um, but more so to say that we need to take our jobs extremely seriously. And that's why I think... Part of that is is kind of reckoning kind of with some of the kind of ethical pitfalls that kind of exist in our industry. I mean, one of them I mentioned earlier was kind of this like kind of strange like deference to the police, I think needs to be re- reexamined in a lot of newsrooms. Um, I think also newsrooms need to examine uh, the way that they frame protest coverage. I think a lot of times uh, newsrooms prioritize what's the most exciting, i.e. like the rioting or, or you know, reported property damage versus like, the mess. Click-focused headlines. Well, yeah, how much bait. of that, just to like jump in quickly, how much of that is just, like I've watched very little cable TV mostly because I knew what it was going to be like with this how much of it is just the photo like the photo of the burning cop car. Oh, like, yeah. That's going to be, the, that's gonna be the, the video on TV, but also... That works great for a front page on a paper. So that's the top story. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Like the stuff in, in the photo takes up how much. I mean, you guys will know this better, like how many inches you need for the newspaper or whatever. But that's what takes up the most space. So that sells, right? Or they think it sells. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it goes back to, you know, how do you frame these stories? And, how you know, how are you packaging them also? It's not just how you write them, but what's the headline that you give on them? You know, what are the photos that you pick? Um, what kind of social media, you know, text do you use to accompany your story? Uh, and I think all of these decisions need to be, like, kind of really scrutinized. Um, I think also newsrooms really need to reckon kind of internally with the way that they, the way that they treat their black journalists and their journalists of color. 
uh, I think a lot of predominantly white newsrooms, which is a majority of newsrooms across the country, they need to reckon with the fact that they're not as diverse as the communities that they represent. Um, and I think also uh, news indi- the news industry, especially legacy media organizations, they've got to stop with this whole objectivity, neutrality thing because it's I think it's it's hurting it's hurting our ability to be truth tellers. I mean, and it's one, getting a little embarrassing. And it's getting extremely embarrassing. I mean, the worst. I mean, the worst offense, obviously, uh, is the um, New York Times op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton, uh, which I I don't want to spend too much time talking about just because I don't want to give it more attention than it's got. I just, but I do just want to say that I like definitely stand with the like with the black New York Times journalists, uh, like who are hard, like who are like hurt by an op-ed like this. I think it's ridiculous, and I think I think if your if your newsroom uh, has an opinion section too, I think you definitely need to need to really really think about what your kind of philosophy is behind like the op-eds that you publish. I, you can't just step back and say, "Oh, we'll just publish all opinions." No, you you actually have to critically think about what you publish. And I think a lot of times, a lot of journalists, especially, honestly, people that are in actual positions of power to change these things, I think a lot of times they raise their hands and they go, oh, well, it's better if we just step back and, you know, just let things play out, you know. We're a neutral observer. We shouldn't push this in any direction. You know, we're just a third party. But that's just such horseshit because that's not true. And it's just like, and I, I like I only know this from just observing from afar, but like the way I see it is like editors up in their tower, like executive editors, like at some place like the New York Times, like they have a discussion between I don't know I, I don't know how many people they would talk to, but I'm imagining like a big table of like twenty of them, and instead of that, like how about you call how about you call your hundreds of, of black reporters who are on the ground covering this stuff and saying like hey like what are your thoughts on this op-ed? And, like, overwhelmingly, they'd say, uh, nope, sorry, don't do that. And then maybe you still do it. Like, maybe you're you're dumb and you don't understand what you're, what you're doing. Like, you're not aligned with the people that work for you, that put out these great stories. You're warping the whole truth that you're looking for just to publish some senator's opinion on the side of objectivity. I, I just think, like, they claim to put so much thought into these things. And at some point, it's, like, thought to the point of overthinking. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like... Like, the logic just says, no, we don't need to do that. But you convince yourself that because you need to both sides everything, that that's an op-ed you need to put out, that military involvement and city protests is is necessary. So it's all warped. Yeah, and the both sides thinking, it's also also really lazy. Like, as journalists, you know, we're not just on the ground to report the facts. We also have to synthesize them in a way that readers you know, understand and in a way where readers kind of take away, you know, what we want them to take away. Um, And so, and so, yeah, we have, we have a lot of power in that. And the people that have the most power are those executive editors um, and are the top editors and the hiring managers too that make decisions on, you know, who gets employed and who doesn't get employed and who, you know, the people that get to decide who gets promoted from a reporter to an editor and who doesn't you know it's one you know like it's one thing if if 
you say your staff is diverse, but your diversity is concentrated in your, you know, lowest, lowest paid employees. It's another thing if your diversity is actually, you know, also in your top management, you know, and you know, all throughout your company, all throughout your company, or all throughout your newsroom. A lot of times in these newsrooms, uh, you know, the quote unquote, you know, journalists of color are the reporters that are on the ground or the producers that, you know, aren't paid that as much money as you know their editors. Who's response do you think was more idiotic to the New York Times op-ed? The New York Times opinion editor or Barry Weiss, New York Times opinion writer? Oof. Because they were both awful. They were both bad. I'm going to go with the editor just because he's the guy with the actual power uh, and he clearly showed in his thread that he just doesn't get it. Also, I think it shows that he's kind of unfit for the job, but that's just my, that's just kind of what I think. I mean, he clearly stated that as of now. That's true. I mean, Barry Weiss's tweet that was not that much better, but I think that was expected I from just, her. Wait, was she was she the one who said one of them was like we just we just need to publish fewer op eds? One of them said no. That, she right? was she was the one who tried to break down the divide in the Times office right now between people who were. Uh, offended and frightened by the publishing of that op-ed and the people who support it. And she tried to analyze, like, it by an, as an age divide, saying, like, it's the younger people who believe this one topic of psych- of psychology and how you were raised versus this older gap of people who believe who were raised on this sort of ideology. And it was just really short-sighted and uninclusive to the actual way that the newsroom has been divided. And... Every New York Times reporter was saying that, and it's it was just very poorly thought out and really tried to – she really was trying to be the one who, like, spoke on it as the most educated, and she was the one who figured it out and just blew it. Yikes. Okay, I'm looking at it now. She has one tweet, and it's like a big, long thread. Yep. Yeah, this is what I remember reading. Here's one way to think about what's at stake. The New York Times motto is – quote, all the news that's fit to print. One group emphasizes the word all, the other the word fit. Oh, yeah. So, like, the older, basically she's saying the older generation is saying, if you have an opinion, your opinion's valid. We'll throw it out there. And then that they're grappling with younger people who say, this is an opinion that needs to be published. Mm. I don't know. That's just... But, I mean, it, it, it didn't go over well, that's for sure. No. I mean... All I saw all day were New York Times reporters pissed off. Well, like, they literally tweeted. Like, I think they had a – I forget. Is Our friend Isabella, who works for the New York Times, tweeted it. They all had, like, a, a unified phrase that they – or sentence they were tweeting that was saying oh, yeah. this is – this puts New York Times journalists of color at danger or something uh, – in danger or something like that. Yeah. And she tweeted it, and I saw someone else tweet that they all violated, like, their contracts or the company policy. By doing I, that. I saw and that they too. all did it at it and like a group of them, like a whole battalion of them did it anyway. And that's yeah. so gangster. I mean that's kind of They're like it can't fire us all. Right. I mean that's the other kind of messed up thing is a lot of these newsrooms have really just really extremely vague social media policies. Uh and the kind of the language that they have on, you know, using social media and you know, posting certain things and posting opinions and posting things about politics are, I mean, in my view, they don't make any sense. I mean, like, 
I remember when I used to work for KCUR, I had to abide by NPR's social media policies or social whatever social media guidelines. And I, I mean, I didn't think they made sense. I thought they were vague. I, I didn't think the p- parameters were very clear. Uh, and I think a lot of times uh, social media policy is wielded against journalists of color. Um, I'm not speaking from my own personal experience, but from experiences I've heard with other people uh, that a lot of times the, pe- the people in the newsroom that get reprimanded for what they see on Twitter uh, are the journalists of color. And usually it's on issues that they feel passionately about or issues that, I mean, intimately affect them. Connor, I'm going to beat you to it. Uh, the only major media company that I think has a very detailed and well thought out social media policy because they've been forced to is ESPN. And to go off of what you were saying with journalists of color being the ones who suffer the most, Jamel Hill is, I mean, the poster child for it. Mm-hmm. Not that it's caused her career to suffer in any way, not that that matters in what I'm saying, but she's she was very open and literally just called Donald Trump a racist, which is not a particularly hot take. Nope. Of any temper of any way. Aged, aged extremely well. Aged beautifully. Like a like the finest of Fine, wines. Finest. Wine. Oh, oh, there we go. oh yeah. And it got her it got her suspended. It mm-hmm. got her, she got in all kinds of trouble. She didn't last the company very much longer after that. But and but because of all of these things they've had and ESPN's had many a uh, a person uh Raised some red flags on social media, and I don't mean not necessarily calling what you all did a red flag because I agree with it, but I'm just saying bring the wrong kind of attention that they don't want because of social media things. So they've they have fine tuned the hell out of their social media policy because they've been forced to. Anyway, but you're completely right about the fact that these policies are definitely geared towards uh, being less conducive to success for journalists of color. And you know what that is? It's just like the whole, and even like I listen to a bunch of sports media shows, and and like Hornick Levitard, we haven't shouted them out yet this episode. But so they've been, you know, they've been, on, they've been doing beautiful work, like unbelievable stuff. But the the whole notion is just like at these networks and these big companies, you can't make white people uncomfortable. If once you cross a certain line. It's like, oh, nope, yep, get out of here. Like, you can't, you talk about Kaepernick, uh, we gotta get them off the air. We got too many white people watching. It's, it's gonna cost us too much money. It's the same reason that all these corporations will make these statements and they can't use the word police brutality in there. It's like, you can't, like, it's, it's a, it's a whole chunk of your, of your audience that it's just a non-starter. So if, like, any of this stuff comes up, that's why it's people of color because it's them, it's never, it's, almost never political it's generally been social issues and civil rights which is separate of politics that again a chunk of the population the same chunk that will not will not agree that two plus two is four um they it just doesn't fly so like that is that's a corporate thing and you would think like some smaller journalistic publications would have better policies but i guess i guess you're talking about bigger ones so i mean it's all the same thing it's it's just in different areas. I'm the only person – I'm pretty sure that uh, no one at my company, which is a small local media company of a handful of newspapers, uh, I'm the only one – the only the members of the sports staff, and that's three of the four members of the sports staff, use their Twitters for non-work things. Like if you look at any reporter that I work with now, 
their Twitters are just articles, just links to articles that they wrote or somebody else wrote. They don't actually – they're not members of Twitter. So in terms of like having a social media policy, like I don't know that we have one. Because no, I we don't we, we don't look into it. Because well, well, we have a handbook. I actually have three copies of it. I should look into mine too. But my general thing is, I'm just like, okay, don't don't uh, don't criticize LeBron's jumper. Like, I just gotta, you know, like that's my thing. <laughs> but it's much less serious than yours. I don't know what if we have a policy. I have, like I said, I have three copies of the handbook, I ha- which I have not read. Um, and because I don't know if they they've they are they're familiar with people who use Twitter the way that I do because they just want you to use it. Uh, as a as a way to distribute articles, only problem is that no one at this company has any followers, and uh, you guys and, I, get on TikTok. and I haven't tweeted an article in weeks. Very good. So, Lisa, are you in the dark? Oh, she's been in the dark. Oh, it's just that the sun has gone down. You want to? Tur- just... You don't need to turn a light on. <laughs> I'm gonna go do that right now. Okay, and we're back in business content do you have anything more to, to wrap up because i i feel like we hit a lot of different things is there something we left out i'd like think? to end on a slightly more positive note if we're if we're good to call it uh um, yeah i feel like we pressure's on you salisa pressure's did on we leave you. anything out uh oh okay i i kind of did want to go back to the j school thing just a little bit that's uh, fine I, I'd, I'd love to Okay. We haven't put out an episode in a while. This could be a ninety-minute job. Okay. This is this is really my last point that I just thought of right now. Uh, I feel like when you're when you're in journalism school, and all of us went through journalism school, and can kind of testify to this, uh, they don't they teach you how to do things like, you know, work a camera, how to post a video on social media, uh, you know, how to do basic basic breaking news reporting, that kind of thing. They don't really teach you how to properly be skeptical of think like a journalist yeah they don't really teach you how to be skeptical and what i mean by that is i feel like they don't teach you what it means i feel like they don't teach you how to have a proper relationship with with people in power like like with the police and with you know a mayor or a governor or the president or really just any any large kind of institution or any person that, you know, has a lot of power. I don't think we're properly taught how to how to interview them, how to deal with information from them. Um, and I think that hurts us as young journalists when we go out into the field because we're not equipped with that kind of critical thinking skills. Um, and some of us learn them on the job, whether it's through internships or, you know, just through jobs that we have, uh, but some some of this some of us don't learn, and for the ones that don't learn, I think it it hurts them down. I think it hurts them down the road, because I think in order to be a good journalist, you have to hold a certain amount of uh, skepticism, healthy skepticism, and I think you have to be a critical thinker. And I wish that was something that was more emphasized in journalism curriculum. Um, is that actual critical thinking aspect and kind of ethical dilemmas of the job uh, instead of just simply focusing on, like, how things work, if that makes sense. And, yeah, like, just the whole the whole thing around developing sources, I think, is, like, the whole deal. I think about this a lot in terms of sports where, like, you have Adrian Wojnarowski and Adam Schefter who were traditional beat reporters. Like, Hornick Woj came literally, like, from, what, the Hartford Current? Or maybe the Bristol Press? Both. Or both? 
both, I believe. Okay, so little papers like that. Like Adam Schefter made his way to Denver. You, It's different, obviously, because, I mean, owners and GMs, like, they have stuff to hide, but it's not like, it's not like um, complaints about cops murdering people. So it's different. But the, I think the skills can be similar. Mm-hmm. And, like, maybe, Hornick, you, like, had, like, we both covered the football team in different ways. But, like, it's a little bit of a different chance. Like, we were fortunate in the fact that, you get on a consistent schedule, like where we would go to practice three times a week, four times a week. You're at every game. The coaches get used to seeing you. And I think for news, there's definitely a lot of the similar skills. And I haven't been out in the field, haven't worked at a newspaper um, aside from the college one. But like when you have to consistently go to city uh, hall meetings and go to press conferences. Even yeah. I'm, I've like, I'm getting to know the mayor of Bristol now, like a little bit. I met the mayor mm-hmm. of Newburton for the first time. And, like, they they are interested in learning my name because they expect to have a relationship with me. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like it's it's a lot of this is, like, there's not as much there, – there aren't as many jobs in, in journalism right now, like traditional jobs where mm-hmm. you would walk in at 2 o'clock on a Wednesday and there's 30 people sitting around the newsroom working on stories, talking about stories. Like, I don't – like, you two tell me if I'm wrong. Like, do you have the luxury of, like – veteran reporters sitting a desk over from you like that you can ask advice from i don't think that's the case a lot no. with young journalists i imagine i don't know no not really i would if the one person in my had, had i mean I, i've only been a news reporter since corona started so i haven't been in a newsroom at all i feel like my bosses at times have been as Fair, helpful as right. they can be other times not so much but back when i was a sports reporter you know about the one person that was in my office with me and he had the veteran part of it down but not the desire or ability to be helpful part of it down. So, But generally the answer would be no because veteran reporters cost more, so you just keep bringing in these kids fresh out of college with no experience and no one to make them better, that you can pay nothing. And I feel like it's a little different, like at a college paper, um, and Salisa, again, tell me if I'm wrong, like you're looking for individual stories. Like mm-hmm. to, all right, I need a story for a couple weeks, what can I find? And then like once it's your full-time job, and you're you're on a beat it is i really do think it's feel and i think it's like anything else where the more you're in it you'll you get the hang of it and like i imagine 100%. you make plenty of mistakes when you're when you're early in it oh yeah like you go up and talk to someone that you shouldn't have talked to them or you you were standing in the wrong place or you missed um you missed some kind of press conference or some meeting that you could have got something from mm-hmm. and i i think like at a certain point there was a time when you would just you would just have colleagues to be like they would kind of show you the ropes. And I think it's more like learning maybe by watching other journalists you respect or like it is unique in that time where there's a lot of journalists and people that blog at smaller places. If you respect them, they might answer a DM or they might answer an email. So I think like those are other things young journalists can do, mm-hmm. but I, it's, it's definitely a different time. And I, do, I don't think we learned a lot of those in the classroom. It was more like you had to seek them out. Yeah. And going back to what I said, I mean, I, before I was reading this to the to right wing people and sort of, trusting the establishment but that's just something that's sort of regardless of who you are is sort of preached to you as a as a minor like as a as just as you grow up you're like respect cops government you trust government all these things so if you're trying to teach young journalists and i mean obviously you might experience things differently or whatever as connor makes that weird reaction but (laughs) well yeah i was was just saying like like every all the perspectives i've been hearing lately are from people of color who are like their their stories about cops very different. But yes, but respect, yeah, I got you. Especially as a white person who came from an affluent neighborhood where literally 
every all of the systems in this country that have been put in place have benefited me. Like I was, I was very. I, you're, you're, you become very For general authorities. Yes. Yeah, you become very trusting of the establishment, and so mm-hmm. if you're trying to raise young journalists and you want them to break that habit, you have to hammer that in. You can't just have a couple of classes that mention it, sort of show examples of it. You have to, you have to force that in their minds, that idea that the people at the top are trying to hide something from you, or that there's there's more to a story than what th- someone tells you the first time. You have to bash people over the head with those ideals to make sure that they understand it and, ha- and understand how to think that way to find those things. And that and, and just to go off that that wasn't done in at the Ethical College Journalism Department. No, that wasn't done well, at all. Professor, what's his name? I will shout out Professor Cohen in the independent media class I took. Yeah, yeah. because there was like, I, like I ne- like I don't I'm I'm not like the guy who thinks he intercepts gospel or anything, but I like there is reporting there that, and I know Salisa, I don't know if that's touchy or whatever, because but I I, d- I never heard of them before that class, and like there's there's some stuff like there's some stuff they write where I'm like eh, I don't know like that's just so anti. That's just like so anti-establishment that I'm like I don't like I don't know how much of it I buy. And then there's other stuff where it's like wow, that's amazing reporting. Like there's detail after detail after detail, and like there's stuff that no one else is writing. And there's there are more publications like that now. And I necess- I don't think I would have like thought to seek them out. And that class like for me was very instructive in the fact that I was seeing different kinds of journalism. So I will shout that out. Oh yeah, and I mean that's. I will. I will also echo that that Jeff Cohen and taking that class um, and learning about independent media was uh, extremely influential in kind of changing the path that I was on as as a journalist. I had no idea that independent media even existed uh, before I took Jeff's class. That's also where I first learned of the Intercept, um, and to this day, I still I still read the Intercept and kind of the investigations that they do. Uh, but one thing about that is if you're gonna if you're gonna teach pe- uh, students about you know, alternative forms of media, if you're going to teach them about, you know, how journalists have spoken truth to power, how journalists have, uh, you know, un, um, revealed corruption at the highest level, you can't just, like, pigeonhole it in a class that's optional to take yeah, for right. students. Like you Put it in the curriculum. Yeah, like, you have to put it, you know, in every class that's mandatory, um, and you have to, you you know, you have to force your students to engage with that kind of material because if you're a journalism school, you really do need to take it, res- you really need to take responsibility over the fact that you are kind of nurturing, like, kind of the next class of journalists and the next generation of journalists. Um, and that means, you know, like, telling them the truth about journalism, whether it means, like, reckoning with its problems um, or whether it means teaching them, you know, like, why they shouldn't believe the police every time they send you a press release. Like, it, it sounds basic, right, when you, like, learn it and when you know it intuitively after years of experience, but it's different when you're starting out and you don't really know what you're doing and you're kind of looking for some guidance. Anything else, Juan? I just think if we're going to wrap up now, uh, I think we yep. could end on a little bit of a, a positive note by... Uh, well, there's obviously not a lot to smile at right now with the things we've been talking about. Uh, if anyone would like to shed any light on the best tweet and or meme they've seen during this time. Oof. Oh, no. Oh, God. On the spot. You have one, Horn? I had, a, I had two. I'm forgetting one of them now. 
I the the one that I'm talking about. And this one's the classic. Is uh, this one came up right? This was like this one might be you know a week old right now. But someone tweeted, "I can't believe Corona blew a three-one lead to racism." Oh my god! Wait, I remember seeing that tweet. That was it. Might have been a tw- twenty-eight to three lead, but same idea regardless. And yeah, it was just I can't believe Corona blew a twenty-eight to three lead to racism. That's good. God, yeah, I'm trying to find one in my likes, but I don't, I don't know if I have anything. I can't really find. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. oh. Well, here's one. Oh, go ahead, Lisa. Oh, uh, the other the other day I saw that someone had tweeted that Tony Hawk jumped on the meeting of, I think a meeting between. Oh, like, it was the LA the, City Council. The LA, yeah, the LA City Council and the police, I think. And he told the, he basically jumped on the call and told the police oh, chief to yeah. resign, which I thought was bad ass. Tony Hawk is, and I saw someone say this like a, a month ago, but Tony Hawk might be like the least polarizing celebrity on the face of the earth. Like he's just there. He's a skateboarder. Like he's sort of on the periphery. Wait, why has he been back in the news? Did his video game come back? Tony Hawk Pro Skater is coming back in uh, September. Yeah, Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Okay, I feel like I've been seeing his name a lot. He was also on the Joe Rogan podcast a couple, like a week ago. He has his own radio show. He's just generally like a great celebrity. And uh, as someone... Who just adore, adores Tony Hawk? There's this, there's another tweet that I saw that was really funny. That this is old. I don't even know what this is. It's a photo of Wesley Snipes from some movie, and he's pointing yes. a gun at somebody, and he's has tears coming out of both eyes. And someone tweeted, "It's when the race war starts, and I have to kill Tony Hawk." And Tony oh, Hawk so responded good. to it, and it says, "I appreciate the hesitation, though." It's so and, good. And someone tweeted it out again. It's like this is more relevant than ever. Yep. Okay, I got I got two sort of and very kind of different things. One of them is a, a coronavirus from The Onion. It's just like the cover photo is funny. It says WHO, World Health Organization, warns COVID-19 could meet end to blowing water through pool noodle into French beans. <laughs> and it's just some guy like blowing the pool noodle. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, oh, and the other one's less funny. It's kind of funny. Chris, uh, Chris Rock's tambourine, his little bit about the bad apples and the airline pilots. Like... Here at American Airlines, we have, we have a few bad apples. Like some of them don't like to land the planes, and like his whole his whole analogy to the cops, and like that got a lot of play on Twitter. Mm. So shout out Chris Rock. 